Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through chapter 22, verse 14, and I'll read that in just a minute. Uh, before we get there, uh, do you re- do anybody recognize this building? It's an older photo. Um, anybody, anybody know what this building is? Some of you should know what this building is. Of course, Carlos does. Anybody besides Carlos? No, I'm just curious. Is Carlos the only one? Carlos, what's that building? What, what is it? <laughs> so it's de- devaluing your property, is that what you're saying? This is, uh, 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 if you don't know, this is Pilgrim Baptist Church. So it's at uh, 33rd in Indiana, right, Carlos? Is that about right? Um, it's a pretty well-known church, actually not just in Chicago, but even around the world, because it's known as the birthplace of gospel music. Uh, the music director there for many years is a man named Thomas Dorsey. Martin Luther King Jr. preached here a number of times when he was uh, in Chicago. It's a pretty, pretty well-known, uh, uh, pretty well-known church uh, on the south side in Chicago uh, throughout the world. This is what it looks like uh, today, though. A little bit hard to see, but uh, many of you know the fire that burned the building down in January of 2006. And, uh, and if you drive by it today, this is what Carlos is referring to, it still looks like this. Um, it's hard to tell from this picture, but it's actually just a shell. There's nothing on the inside. And so you have these kind of beautiful walls and arches on the outside, but they're all being supported by these beams so that it doesn't, doesn't collapse. If, if, if people were buildings, I think many of us would feel like this building. Uh, and there's this, there's this uh, phrase that I keep hearing many of you say, maybe not quite in these words, and it's, I can't keep this up much longer. I can't keep this up much longer. I think if people were buildings, many of us would be Pilgrim Baptists, supported by these structures on the outside. And, and the phrase I think that runs through our minds is, How much longer can I keep doing this? How much longer can I hold it together? I can't keep achieving at this level much longer. I can't keep giving to so many people much longer. I can't keep this addiction under control much longer. I can't keep my marriage together much longer. I can't disguise this vast emptiness inside of me much longer. I can't hold out for that godly man much longer, that godly woman much longer. I can't keep everyone happy much longer. I can't hold back the trauma of my past. I can't bear the crushing loneliness. I can't stand the uncertainty of my future much longer. If people were buildings, I think many of us would feel this way. I feel like I've had many conversations with different ones of you in our church over the past weeks and months. And in some way, this is what you're saying. This is what we are saying. I'm not sure how much longer I can keep the walls up. I'm not sure how much longer I can take this, whatever the this is. The interesting thing is that whether you're a Christian or not, I think the gospel sounds like good news to us. The gospel says that 
In Jesus, we have everything that we need, that in Jesus, our lives are being made new. And again, whether you're a Christian or not, I think that actually sounds like great news. That sounds like a relief. That sounds like encouragement and hope. Amen. And yet. Many of us who on a Sunday morning would say, yes, the gospel is the center of my life. Jesus is the center of my life. The rest of our week, we feel like. And maybe we can ignore it most of the time because for many of us, our lives are so busy. We have very little time to reflect, right? But it's when you can't fall asleep at night that you begin to feel this. When it's when things go wrong or when that person shows back up or the email comes that, mm, mm. This emotion that we feel and experience much of the time pops back up. I'm not sure how much longer I can hold this together, keep this up. And so the gospel sounds like great news and we confess that Jesus is at the center of our lives and yet we feel this still. Uh, And just to be frank with you, as as the pastor of this church, uh, uh, this is a dilemma for me. I wish I had an easy way to talk about this experience. I wish there was something simple that I could say just for my own good, frankly, but for yours as well. Because I'm beginning to see that this is the reality for most of us much of the time. And and, and Kelly leads us in these amazing songs about Christ and centering our lives on Jesus. And we preach, whether it's Michelle or myself or someone else, every single Sunday about the gospel, about Jesus. And yet, still, 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 these are the stories that I hear. These are the stories we're telling one another. These are the experiences of our lives. What I want to do this morning is look at these three parables that Jesus um, lumps together. There's themes that run throughout these three parables that I think ties them together. And some of it's going to sound very familiar to you at the beginning, but Jesus does something very interesting at the end of the last parable. He introduces a character that I don't think we've seen yet in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's not somebody who's particularly um, appealing to us, I don't think. But I think it's in this last character who we might actually prefer to overlook that we may begin to find something that starts to touch on this experience for us. So I want to tell you this morning that there is good news. There is gospel this morning. But I also want to tell you that it may come at the end of some pain. That the good news this morning may come on the backside of spending some time looking at where this experience comes from for us. Does that make sense? I'm not going to ask you if you're up for it because we're just going to do it. Um, so let me pray for us. God, now I ask that you would give us, your church, a courage to be honest with ourselves. Help us to not be deluded, delusional. Help us not to lie to ourselves about where we are with you. Holy Spirit of God, give us courage to acknowledge the state of our lives before you. Give us a desperation that we'd be willing to set aside everything but you in order to find true, sustaining life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
Uh, so Jesus has traveled from Galilee, the north of Palestine, down into Jerusalem, the southern end of Palestine. Jesus has spent most of his ministry in Galilee, teaching, performing miracles. Now he's in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is confronting now the religious leaders. We've seen this over and over again over the past few Sundays. We're going to keep seeing it uh, in the near future. Um, Jesus is, has told his disciples, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. This is all about to end. So there's a climax that's building as we've studied Matthew so far. And we see this confrontation continue today. Let me read to you these three parables. Jesus is speaking directly now to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of the people, the teachers of the law. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28, the first parable. Jesus directs this again to the religious leaders. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did, his, uh, did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John, this is John the Baptist, came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The religious leaders respond. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. The oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, one to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. 
Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of God. All right, let's just jump right into this here. We're seeing here three views of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has proclaimed that he has come not only to to talk about the kingdom of heaven, but to actually usher it in. We've seen this theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. In these parables, we see three different windows into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in each one of these parables, this is what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. So we're getting three different windows to this. And there's a number of different themes that run through these. But I think the theme that is most prominent is this. There is both expected and unexpected entry into the kingdom. There are those who expect to be present within the kingdom of God who find themselves on the outside. And those who expect to be on the outside who find themselves being invited in. This is a theme that we see throughout these three parables. Those who expect to just naturally be within the kingdom find themselves on the outs. And those who never expect to get an invitation find themselves welcome with open arms. Let's see how this plays out. In the first parable, it's the parable of the two sons. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's a son who appears to be obedient but ends up being disobedient. And then one who appears to be disobedient who ends up doing what his dad wanted to do. Go out and work the vineyard. Pretty straightforward. Not very complicated. The twist comes at the end. Right? So it's very straightforward. The twist comes when Jesus says, okay, now let me tell you who is who in the story. What does he say? The son who initially said yes and didn't go is who? It's the religious leaders. The son who initially said no, but then ended up going is who? What does Jesus say? Prostitutes and the tax collectors. Now, hopefully by now, those of you who've been in our church for a little bit, you understand how offensive this would have been to the religious leaders. The idea that tax collectors and prostitutes, sinners, were entering the kingdom of heaven before them, the religious leaders, incredibly offensive. This is the twist in the parable. Yeah, people are going to enter the kingdom, but it's not who you expect, religious leaders. Jesus says, the sons heard the same instructions. Go and work in the vineyard. One did it, one did not. Jesus says the same thing. You you both heard John's message of righteousness. The same message that Jesus has been proclaiming. You both heard it. Religious leaders and sinners heard the same thing. You were both there when John was baptizing people. Religious leaders, you rejected it. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, you welcomed it with open arms. You both heard the father's instructions, two sons, one of you did it, one of you didn't, same thing. Religious leaders, you're the ones who look like you would have accepted the news of God's righteousness, but in fact, you rejected it. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, you look like the kind of people who would be on the outs in the kingdom, but you heard the message and you welcomed it gladly. You see this? Pretty straightforward, right? Right? You see this theme developing? People who expect to be in are not in. Those who expect to never be invited are actually welcomed with open arms. You see this? The message that John gives at the Jordan River is the same message that Jesus ends up giving. Repent. Turn away from everything that you put before God and come to God. This is bad news for the religious leaders because they had it all figured out already. They had their system in place. They didn't need to repent. They didn't need to set anything down. That's what they thought. So the idea of repenting and turning towards God meant setting down everything that they had worked so hard for. All of their righteousness, all of their good works had to be set aside. 
The same message was great news to prostitutes and the tax collectors. Why? Because they had no acts of righteousness. They had no good works, good deeds to try to claim, did they? They, they just assumed that they were on the outs with God, outside of what God was doing. And so the, the, the message from John was great news. You mean that I'm invited? That's great news. You mean that, that God wants me despite all of this? Where I've been, who I am, what I've done, what I've seen? God wants me. You understand how that would have been great news. Again, pretty straightforward, so let's jump to the next parable, the parable of the tenants. Jesus is here pulling from pretty common language, common imagery, a vineyard. It would have been very common that day day for a wealthy man, maybe lived in a city like Jerusalem, to purchase a bunch of land, plant a vineyard, and then rent that out, lease that land out, just as a good businessman would, right? So he lives a, a long ways away, he hires some people to work the land for them, and then the deal usually would have been that the, the, the workers would have gained a percentage of the yield, so they were uh, motivated to work hard to care for the land, and then the owner would have gotten the rest. That's how it worked. It was also pretty common in this day for there to be um, arguments between the landowner and the tenant. Now, do we agree on this percentage or this percentage? And when do you get paid? And when do you harvest? And you understand? It's business, right? Just like today, it's complicated. So, so when Jesus tells this parable, people are like, okay, yeah, we can picture that. We've seen that. Yeah, I've got an uncle who was involved in something like that. The twist comes in this parable when um, the tenants don't just argue with the owner. They actually kill the servants. And then they kill the son. Now, the servants in both of these parables, in this one and in the next one coming, would have represented the Old Testament prophets. Those who God, the father, the landowner, had sent to his people to say, mm, you're, you're messing up. You're, you're missing it. You're, you're being exclusive to my mission in the world. You need to change. You need to turn back to me. What happened to the Old Testament prophets? What happened to them? You didn't want to be an Old Testament prophet, right? Like that, if your career guidance counselor says, this is, you know, that's bad news. You don't want to be that. It's not going to end well for you. This is, this is what Jesus is tapping into when he tells these stories here. And so what happens for the religious leaders when they hear this is that they initially, they're like, okay, we're tracking, we're good. Jesus asks the question, what's the landowner going to do? And they say, well, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end, right? So the religious leaders, they're there, they're tracking with it. Yeah, this is wrong. But then by the end of the parable, they want to have Jesus arrested. What happens? They find out that they are the tenants in this story. See, they know who the prophets are. That's very clear. This is imagery they would have been familiar with. Yeah, we know, we know about the prophets. But us, the righteous ones, the religious leaders, the elite, we're the tenants. We're the ones who killed the, the servants. We're the ones who killed the son. How, how does Jesus help them to see who they are in this parable? He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from the Old Testament. And, 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 and he pulls here from imagery, again, that would have been very, very familiar. What does he say? He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In case you missed it. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, religious leaders, and given to a people who who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You're the tenants, religious leaders. You're the ones from whom the kingdom is going to be taken. 
you see yourselves as the caretakers, as the gatekeepers to what God is doing in the world. And that's going to be taken from you now. We're also introduced to the son in this parable. We need to, again, we talked about parables a while ago, so we need to kind of put ourselves in this mindset here because Jesus does something interesting. He starts with the son. The son goes to the vineyard to collect um, what's due the father, and he's killed. And it kind of appears as that's where it stops, but what Jesus does is he switches metaphors. He moves from son to stone, right? So again, he's pulling from the Psalms. He's pulling from this known Old Testament, Old Testament imagery, and so he begins quoting from the Psalms, saying, the stone that the builders rejected, say, the son who the tenants killed, the stone that the builders rejected, has what? Has what? Huh? Has what? Have become the chief cornerstone, have become the capstone, depending on your translation. What is this? The stone, this, this building block of some kind that the builders initially reject to the, the scrap heap, has become the most important stone of the entire building. Okay? Show the middle slot, the middle picture, the old picture. So this is, this is kind of what a, a capstone looks like. This is when the Library of Congress was built in Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, Warren uh, or, or Jonathan, if I say something stupid about architecture, just, you know... When I say something stupid about architecture, right? So my understanding of, 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 a, of a keystone or a capstone is that it's the most important part in an arch, right? That, that for the arch to, to hold together, this stone has to fit in just perfectly at the pinnacle of the arch, has to be fitted just right. If that stone is taken out, if it collapses, if it's not fitted right, if it's corruptible in any way, the entire archway will collapse. If there's anything built around that archway, it will collapse as well. There's actually examples of this all, all over our city. It's funny, yesterday I was looking for a picture of this and then like, I walked out of my condo and, and, it's right, and we have one right there. So they're all over. This is a pretty common architectural feature. This is the capstone or the chief cornerstone. The imagery here is that the stone that the builder said, eh, we don't need this, we reject it, ends up becoming two things. The most integral part of the entire building. Okay? And also the most conspicuous. Yeah, so let's just show the first one here, Tyler. So oftentimes the, the capstone or the keystone, it, it, it's decorated. It, you, the, your eye is drawn to it. It's sometimes it's bigger, it's more prominent. And so it becomes the architectural feature that's integral to the building. But it's also often decorated. You want your eye to be drawn to it. Not always, but oftentimes, especially in Jesus' day, this is what would have come to mind. So here is the son who's killed in the parable. Switch metaphor, fast forward. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. What is Jesus doing? I think Jesus is, is leaning forward into his story. The son will be killed, but the story will not end there. The stone the builders reject will be, the word I like is vindicated. Vindicated. Will be shown to be the only stone that can hold it all together. Jesus will be crucified, will be buried, and will be resurrected, will be vindicated. This is an introduction into the story here. The son, the son who will not be stopped by the tenants' persecution, by their murder, but will in fact be vindicated. 
So in verse 43, we read, therefore, I tell you, therefore is always an important word in the scripture. It reminds us to look back at what's happened and then forward to what's going to happen because of what just happened. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The last characters in our story are the new tenants. There are the first tenants who abuse and murder the servant and the son. The father comes, exacts his vengeance, and gives the vineyard to new tenants. New tenants who what? Produce the fruit of the vineyard. How is this possible? Jesus says, because the stone has been vindicated. Because the son was crucified and will be resurrected. The gates of the kingdom will be thrown open. Therefore, the vineyard will be given to new people who will bear the fruit of the vineyard. Who are these new people? Remember, these parables come right in a line, right? So if you were listening to the first parable, who are these new people who are going to keep the vineyard? Huh? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. This is where, this is where the religious leaders go in their mind. Right? They know that they are the tenants whom the kingdom is being taken from. And Jesus says, because the son has been vindicated, new tenants are given the kingdom. New tenants are given stewardship over the vineyard. Who are they? Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. Is this making sense so far? Yes, do this, yes? Okay, all right. Third parable, the parable of the wedding banquet. Again, we're seeing these themes run throughout these, that those who expect to be just naturally included in what God is doing find themselves on the outside, and those who are surprised to ever get an invitation are given this invitation very explicitly. Um, in this parable, we find this surprising element at the very end that I referenced uh, uh, earlier, but let's, let's wait just a second before we get to that. The parable is of a king who throws a wedding banquet for his son. Now, in this day, this would have been a huge, huge deal. The king is throwing a, a, a wedding banquet for Basically, the prince, right? The, the, his son. So if you got an invitation to this wedding banquet, do you think you would go? Oh, yeah. Do you think it was an option not to go? No. I go, like, if some of us get wedding invitations, you know, and you look at it and you're like, I haven't heard from this person in however long, right? And... You know it's maybe just has to do with the gift registry on the bottom of the thing, you know? That's just me. I'm just kind of cynical that way. This wasn't like that, right? You get an invitation to the king's son wedding, you're showing up. You understand? One scholar says that if you, if you didn't show up, it was tantamount to insurrection. You, you were, pardon me, being crass. You were basically giving the finger to the king. Really? This was just blatant, out-and-out offensive rebellion to the king. This was saying, I don't care about you. I don't care about your protection over our land, what you've done for us. I am opposed to you. You see? But there's another layer that this parable is working on as well. Because Jesus is pulling from language from Isaiah chapter 5. Where the king, who is God, sets this great banqueting table, banqueting feast for his people. Jesus pulls from this metaphor earlier in in Matthew as well, when the king at the end of time sets this banqueting table. The expectation is that when God accomplishes all that God has promised to do, then there will be a feast, 
a great banquet where everybody, Jesus says, from the east and from the west will be invited to participate. So this parable is working on two different levels. On one level, it's like, yeah, I get that. I understand. We have a king. If I got an invitation to it, I'd go no matter what I thought about the king. Okay, it's working on that level. But the, on the other level, for the religious leaders, the expectation is at the end of time, when God has made all things right, when God has, has answered all that God said he was going to do, when God has, has, has kept every one of God's promises, then there will be a great banquet, a feast. And these invited guests refuse it. Not just refuse it, they oppose it, don't they? Again, the images of these servants as Old Testament prophets who are mistreated, abused, killed. From the previous parables, we can assume that there's going to be some justice, right? Just as in the last parable there was. And sure enough, in this parable, the king sends out his troops and they destroy the city. They they, they utterly destroy the city. Scholars think that this Jesus, again, may be leaning forward a little bit and, 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 and looking at the time 40 years down the road when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Rome. Can't say that for sure, but it seems like a good possibility. But from the other parables, we can also expect that the invitation is going to go out to new people, right? In the first parable, it's the one who initially appeared to be rebellious who is actually acceptable. In the second parable, it's those who consider themselves so far removed from what God was doing who were given stewardship over this vineyard. And in this third parable, what is it? Who's invited in this third parable? Anyone. What does the king says? He goes to his servants. He said, those first servants, they were clearly not worthy to come to my banquet. So therefore, go out to every street corner, every neighborhood, every block. Tell everybody about my banquet, whether they're good or whether they're bad. Invite them all. Everyone, anyone is now welcome to my banquet. Uh, Tyler, can you put up that grid? So this kind of helps me to see how these themes sort of work. So here are three parables on the left. And then across the top, these two main themes that I think are weaving through. So in the first one, assumed acceptance, assume that I'm in, it's the initially obedient son, Israel's religious leaders. The surprised by acceptance are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. In the, in the parable of the tenants, you would assume that the first tenants, Israel's religious leaders, would be the ones who are accepted, but they reject what God is doing. So it's the new tenants, those who despite their past, despite their histories, despite their labels, are in fact going to produce the fruit of this vineyard. And then in this last parable of the banquet, you would assume that the initial guests, especially in that day, the initial guests, of course they would be in. Who would refuse such an invitation? But they do. And so the invitation goes out to everyone on the highways and the byways. You're welcome. Come. The banquet table is set for you. So there's these two themes that weave their way through these three parables and hold these three parables together. The invitation has gone out. Work the vineyard. Produce the fruit of the vineyard. Come and feast at my banqueting table. Those who assumed that they would be included, in fact, reject the invitation. Those who you would think would never be invited end up accepting the invitation. And if we could put it this way, I think we could say that that this is the gospel in these parables. That in Jesus, there's a new gatekeeper to the kingdom of God. See, these three parables, if we were standing in the disciples' shoes, listening in, what we would have heard was, 
the authority is being taken away from the religious leaders. This, this would have been the immediate reaction to these three parables. The authority is being taken away from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the chief priests. Those, those self-proclaimed gatekeepers to the kingdom, their authority is being taken away. And there's a new gatekeeper who's Jesus. I think if we, if we see the gospel in these, three, in these three parables, it's just that, that. That Jesus makes it incredibly clear that there is only one who has the authority to bar you to the kingdom. And he is the one who's thrown wide the gates to the kingdom. Amen? Is that good news? This is the gospel in this parable, is that in Jesus, every obstacle, every, every blockade has been taken away. This, this is why the tax collectors, think about this. This is why the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes, Jesus says, are rushing into the kingdom. Because they've been told that everything that would have kept them out in Jesus has been removed. You, you understand how, how great that news was to them. To someone who expected to never be included, to hear that Jesus wants this. That God wants all of this? My past, what I'm doing, my career, what's going on in my head. He wants all, he wants my greed, my pride, my ethnos. He wants all of this. You're telling me that he will take all of this from me? You see, this is good news. And so they're rushing not good news for the religious leaders, though, because Jesus is showing that their entire way of authority and religious righteousness keeping is bankrupt. And so it's the quote-unquote sinners who rush in to the kingdom. The vindicated Christ removes every barrier to the kingdom, takes on to himself all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our wickedness, and puts it to that. So that one thing and one thing only remains to step into the kingdom. And it's acceptance of the invitation. I've set this amazing feast for you. I've prepared this banquet for you. Will you show up? That this is the limits, this is the limits of what we do as invited guests to the banquet. We don't clean ourselves up. We don't get our stuff together. We step into the banqueting hall. That's it. And this is great news. This is great news for those of us who feel like the walls are about to come crashing down. This is great news for those of us who who existentially in our guts, I don't know how much longer I can. Jesus said, you don't have to keep it up anymore. I've done it. Come in right now, exactly how you are. Which brings us to what I'm calling the poorly dressed guest. Can I tell you that I wish Jesus had left this out of the story? Seriously. And just so you know, like the next three chapters of this book... 
I really wish Jesus had left that out too. So if you want to see a preacher sweat, show up for the next three Sundays. Man. I had to do some work on this one. Because we need to take Jesus' words very seriously. But we need to take all of Jesus' words very seriously. So I want us to look at this man and his interaction with the king in the context of all that we've heard Jesus say so far. Okay? Is that all right? Are you awake? The poorly dressed guest. Let me just read this to you to refresh your memory. But when the king came to see the guests, this is all of the folks who weren't initially invited, he noticed a man uh, who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without your wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king told the attendant, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. What does it mean that this man is not wearing wedding clothes? That's kind of an odd thing to say, right? You're probably not going to get tossed out of a wedding these days for not having wedding clothes on. I'm guessing. Um, so so, so what is, what is, what's happening here? Uh, it's important that we look at the previous two parables and actually at the parable that Michelle preached from last week as well. Because there's this common theme throughout these. Actually, it's pretty explicit. That those who've been transformed by God, those who dwell within the kingdom of God, bear God's fruit in our lives. Right? You remember this from last week. If you weren't here last week, go listen to Michelle's sermon on the website. And one of the things that Michelle made very clear last week is that we are not capable of bearing fruit. You remember that? This is, this is the beauty of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Because remember what she said? She said, if you even look at a fig tree wrong, it's not going to bear fruit. Super finicky. This is a perfect image for us bearing fruit. Because we can't make it happen. We can't produce the fruits of the Spirit in our life. Ever tried really hard to be humble? How's that work for you? Right? It's impossible. This is the beauty of the, of the fig tree, is that it's a reminder that only God can bear God's fruit in us. And we see this in our parables today. Again, it's all imagery about vineyards and fruit being produced. So I think when the king comes to the man and he says, you're, you're, you're not dressed right, this is falling just in line with everything we've seen so far, which is to say, you're not bearing any fruit. Okay? It's not that, oh, you didn't take a shower. It's not like you didn't get yourself cleaned up before you came into the kingdom, right? Because that would go against everything that Jesus has said so far. Amen? So what is this? This is, you're at the banquet, but nothing's changing. You're at the banquet, but you look the same as when you got here. There's a problem here. Now, this is, this is where I need you to push into some hard stuff with me for just a minute. I think there's some good news on the other side of this. Most parables don't provide a lot of details, and that's intentional. We talked about parables at the beginning of this book. Parables are a way to get us to step into a new reality, into the story. So there's not a lot of details. It's in Jesus here inviting us to experience this. So what does it look like us for us to step into this man's shoes for a minute? For this poorly dressed guest at the banquet. What is his experience in this? Why is there not transformation in his life? 
I can think of a, a few different possibilities. Maybe he's like the religious leaders who just out and out have rejected, have just rejected what Jesus is doing, right? They've said, we, we hear what you're saying about the kingdom. We understand that you're claiming to be the new gatekeeper, but we're not giving up our authority. We're going to oppose you. If this is the case, then it makes no sense for this person to stay at the wedding banquet. Would you agree? He's opposed to it. So of course the king is going to chuck him out. Second possibility. In Luke chapter 17, we find a story where 10 lepers come to Jesus. Anybody remember this story? 10 lepers come to Jesus and, and they ask to be healed and, and, and he does it. He heals all 10 of them. How many came back to thank Jesus? Do you remember the story? One. I, I think we could maybe call this um, the consumer approach to Jesus. Jesus, I have this problem I'd like you to fix. And once it's fixed, I'm going to carry on with the way I have my life going before. Here are these ten lepers who've been devastated by this disease. They're healed by Jesus and they, they're done with him at that point. Their lives are not reoriented around him. They don't submit to his lordship. They don't ask to follow him or participate in what he's doing in the world. They're gone. Except for the one. The one comes back, falls on his face, thank Jesus to worship him. So, so maybe this poorly dressed man is like one of those nine lepers. I heard there was something interesting happening. I'd like, you know, to kind of observe it, maybe get a little something for me, but I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep the same clothes on I came in. That's a possibility, I think. Third thing that I thought was, was maybe this is... Uh, an example of what Paul gets at in Galatians chapter 3 where he just goes off on the church. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was portrayed as crucified. And now you've gone back to trying to keep the law to make yourself acceptable to God. Foolish, foolish Galatians. Paul's ticked. These Galatians, these early Christians, they, they heard about Jesus. They heard about the gate being thrown wide to the kingdom by Jesus. They received that news with joy. But once they step into that kingdom, they go, thank you, Jesus, for that. Now I got it from here. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And now I can kind of make my life go how I think it needs to go. I'll clean myself up. I'll take care of my own issues. I'll fix the stuff in my family. Thank you very much. I will now make myself acceptable to you. What's happening with this man? I don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. I think we can safely say that this is a person who's bearing no fruit in his life. There's no evidence that this person's life has been transformed by Jesus. So frankly, it just doesn't make any sense for him to be at the banqueting table. This is... It's a hard word, church. It's a hard word. But I don't know how we get around that. For us to say that the gospel is simply Jesus throwing wide open the gates of the kingdom and we can just walk in and kind of do our thing how we want to do it and not expect our lives to be transformed by Jesus is a cheap version of the gospel. 
collectors and the sinners, they're rushing in. Why? Because they know that their lives need to be transformed. They cannot wait for Jesus to turn their lives upside down, to put the old self to death and raise something new in them. They're feasting at the banqueting table because they are loving that their lives have been transformed by Jesus. And this man stands off to the side saying, no, I'm good, thanks. I'm I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I just want to check it out. There's no place at the banqueting table for someone who doesn't show up and say, I need to be radically transformed from the inside out. And I think we're beginning now to get at this sense of barely being able to keep the walls standing. I can't keep this up much longer. The parables, as we've seen, they are about the failure of the religious leaders to bear fruit. But when Jesus introduces this poorly dressed man, what does he do? He extends this evaluation to us as well. Can we be okay with that for a minute? That's one thing for us to sit here and go like, ooh, really gave it to those religious leaders. Jesus places this poorly dressed man. He says, no, 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 no. You too. You too. Are you producing the fruit of the vineyard? Did you say yes to Jesus, but then not go out into the vineyard? Did you oppose the invitation to the wedding banquet? See, this man extends this let's just call it judgment, to us as well. Because it's Jesus, there's invitation even in the judgment. Amen? We've said this repeatedly, that Jesus is the only one who somehow stands as both redeemer and judge. It's always both. It's always both. So where do we see the redemption here? Where do we see the invitation for those of us in the room who wouldn't call ourselves Christians, I think there's, a, there's an invitation to transformation. See, Jesus expects that when we say yes to him, we're not just signing up for a new religion. We're not changing our denominational affiliation. We're not becoming a part of a church. We're actually giving our lives over, expecting our lives to be completely transformed. This is, I think, the invitation of judgment in this is that when we step into the kingdom, it's not just a, hey, come hang out at the table. It's your whole life is going to be transformed by Christ. You're going to be given new, lasting fruit in your life. You can expect healing and transformation and restoration. Even in judgment, there's invitation. What about those of us in the room who call ourselves Christians? What's the invitation for us? Maybe it's a little harder or heavier for those of us who are Christians. Are we producing fruit? Have we allowed the Holy Spirit of the living God to produce the fruit that only God can in our lives? Or are we a building that's being propped up that we're trying our best to hold together 
could come collapsing down at any minute. The invitation of this poorly dressed man who stands off in the corner for you and I is to ask sober-mindedly and honestly. And is it me trying to keep this thing together? Or have I completely given myself over to be transformed by God? We're in this Lenten season right now. Ash Wednesday was this past week. This is the first Sunday of Lent. Whether or not you grew up celebrating or acknowledging Lent, I did not. It is a time historically for Christians to, to look honestly at our lives. We're preparing ourselves in a sense for Easter Sunday when we rejoice that the tomb is empty. In the leading up to that time, though, we acknowledge that it's our own sinfulness and rebellion that leads Jesus to the cross and is then vindicated by God. So I think, again, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, this is a season that maybe invites us into this consideration of Is there fruit in my life? Is there life bubbling up out of my life? Or am I just trying to hold this up together? Here's here's the the good news I want to leave you with this morning. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. My claim would be that every single one of us has a capstone of some kind in our lives. My my, my claim would be that every single one of us has to have some sort of this capstone that's holding everything together. How do we know what it is? Well, Well, consider, again, the capstone is the most integral part to the building, but is also maybe the most noticeable, visible, right? So if it's the the most noticeable piece of this building, we could say... What do you want to be known for? Honestly. What is it that you want to be known for? And I would say that's your capstone. That's the thing that you are trusting to hold your life together. The thing that you want to be most visible about you is the thing you're trusting to hold it all together. I'm successful in business. I make my parents proud. I'm a great mother. What did, I want to be known for this. Or, or another question we could say is, if it's the most integral stone to the whole building, what is it in your life that if it were plucked away, everything would come crashing down? I would say, that's your capstone. What what is it in your life that is so important to you, so central to you, so integral to your life, that if it were to just disappear tomorrow, crumble away tomorrow, your life would collapse on itself? He leaves, they don't notice your effort, she gets sick. What is it? The capstone, if it were to crumble away, the arch of your life would collapse in on itself. My claim to you is that every single one of us has something that is a capstone holding it all together. What is it? Not do you have a cap? What is the capstone?
And the claim that Jesus makes in these parables is that there is one capstone that will never, ever crumble. There's one capstone that will never collapse, never let you down. Say it. It's Jesus. This is the claim that Jesus makes, that everything is built around something. Everything has to have something in its center to hold together. And there is only one thing, one person that will never fail, never let you down. It's the stone that the builders rejected that was vindicated by God and has become the capstone, the resurrected Christ. This is it. I I will boldly say that there is nothing else that you can build your life around that will sustain your life. Nothing. That until Jesus and Jesus alone is the capstone, you will feel like Pilgrim Baptist Church trying to hold your walls up. And knowing that at some point, it's all going to come crumbling down. Jesus makes the claim that he's it. That with him as your cornerstone, your life will not come crumbling down. That with him as your cornerstone, your life will be rebuilt from the ground up. You will be transformed from the inside. Choose your metaphor that you will bear fruit that only God can bear. This is what happens when Jesus and Jesus alone is our capstone. This is the great news to the tax collectors and the prostitutes because they know of their complete inability to conjure up any kind of real transformation. And it's the really hard news. It's the hard news for the religious leaders. It's the hard news for the poorly dressed man who are depending on themselves hold it all together. So is Jesus the capstone good news or hard news for you this morning? Is Jesus the stone that's going to hold all things together or as he says, the stone which will crush us? Be like the pharaoh, be like the tax collectors. Be like the prostitutes. Understand that this invitation is one of complete grace. That Jesus is saying, whatever you're carrying, whatever you're holding, whatever baggage, whatever sin, whatever past, I want it. And I'm going to put it to death and raise something beautiful and new in you. Worship team. Is Jesus your capstone? Again, I, I, I have enough conversations with you, and, and frankly, I experience it in my own life too, where, where I feel like there's a bit of a block for many of us, where we somehow know about the cross. We, we could explain it. We, we know why we are citizens of a new kingdom. And yet, your experience of life as such is burdensome. You're tired. You're worn out. You're weary. Someone say amen. I'll say amen. You're frustrated. You're insecure. You're worried. 
You, you wake up at night wondering, if that thing were to disappear, how would I ever keep this up? If that person were to go, if they found out about that, how would I keep these women tired, worn out, weary, broken down? And this is not how Jesus intends us to live, church. Some of you have become satisfied with some of you have been, just become to, to, to accept this. I'm glad I got Jesus. And one day when he comes back or when I'm with him in heaven, things will be better then. But until then, I'm gonna, I got to shoulder this. I got to carry this. I got to hold this together because if I don't, who will? This is not how you and I were intended to live. Yes? When Jesus comes and he says, look, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. He means it. That's not like a you know, little spiritual thing that every once in a while you can feel good about yourself. I mean, have we not seen over and over again in Matthew that God means to completely transform us? That God means to take away the old, the broken, the the dysfunctional and replace it with something new. To breathe into us the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God. So so can I push you a little bit during Lent? And for those of you who find yourself feeling like you're on this treadmill, I know the gospel and yet my life. I get the gospel and yet my life. I get what Jesus did and yet my experience of this life. Can I ask you if you'll push into this a little bit over the next few weeks? Can you put yourself in the shoes of the poorly dressed man? Say, okay, well, let me just assume for a minute that that's where I stand. What is it that's keeping me from fully diving into this pain? What is it? Is there a part of me that's rebelling, rejecting what Jesus is doing? Be honest about it. Is it it that I I heard the great news, I heard the gospel, but then, like the Galatians, I've decided I think I can do the rest of it on my own. Is it like the, the lepers where Jesus got me something? I could add a little bit to my life, but I've got my own plans. I think I know how my life should go. So I'm going to make sure that it goes that way. The parable, Jesus' parables invites us to step into these shoes for a minute and say, what would this look like for you? And what might change? What invitation might I accept so that I could sit down to the banquet and feast? That I could, I could experience the pleasure of my Father. could know that I am here by no merit of my own. I was accepted exactly how I am and being given new life even now. What would it look like? What would it look like? What invitation would you accept? What would you hear Jesus saying to you? Are you understanding what I'm saying? life that many of us are experiencing right now is not the life that Jesus intends for us. It's not. 
is the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more, church. Let me pray. Spirit of the living God. You know our hearts, our minds, you know our histories, you know our anxieties, you know our hopes, you know our passions, you know our sin. chosen as our capstone and it crumbles away. So Holy Spirit of the living God, pray that you give us the courage to step into these shoes and to ask, why might I be holding back? Why might I be putting on my old raggedy why can't I sit down and feast the banquet that God has prepared for His people? I pray for courage for each one of us. I pray at the same time that you would keep your gospel central to us as we look at maybe some hard things in our life, as we admit to some painful things in our lives. I pray that your gospel would remain central, that in Jesus, the gates to the kingdom have been thrown open. That in Jesus, every burden, every sin, every piece of rebellion in our lives can be handed over to the one who will put it to death. Lord, we are convinced, we've said this from the beginning, that if our church is going to have any life to give, this neighborhood, to this city, it's going to be because we are experiencing that new life ourselves. Some of us just aren't right now. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on us. We pray that you would convict our hearts during the season of Lent. We pray that Miraculously, Jesus and Jesus alone would be the capstone that holds our lives and our church together. We desire to be a church that makes a difference in this city. But we know that it has to start with us. So I pray that it Pray that anything in us, even at this moment, that's holding back, anything that's pushing ourselves away from you, anything that's saying, no, not me, I'm good to go, I pray that these things would be broken and replaced with the assurance of your grace, the presence of Christ in our 
lives. That even as we look at where we have stepped away from you, even as we acknowledge where we repent before you, you continue to love us. You continue to beckon us towards yourselves. You continue to invite us to the table. So do the work, I pray, God, that only you can do. Do it in my life. Reveal in me, Lord, the things that need to be set aside, the things that I must confess and repent from. Do the same for every one of us, Jesus. Pray in your perfect name.